Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Thank you, everyone, for joining today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today, our guest is Sakar Kawale with Premium Cashflow Capital. Sakar is a seasoned real estate investor and entrepreneur. He has a background in engineering and has worked in the high-tech IT industry for many years. And currently, he owns over 200 single-family rentals, townhouses, and apartments, and is involved in larger multifamily value-add projects. So I'm really glad to meet you today, Sakar. How are you doing? I am doing good. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast, Eileen. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to come join me and, you know, share your background and your story in real estate. Sure. (laughs) So if you can please start by giving a little bit more about your background and sharing how you got started in real estate, that would be wonderful. Sure, sure. My background, Eileen, is at a high level. I came to U.S. in 1997 for doing my MS. Uh, That was in 1997. And basically, I got on the job around that sort of 1999-2000 era. And within the first two years of my career, I was laid off. And At the time, you know, I was engaged and was going to have sort of wedding in six months. And that kind of drove home to me that life is extremely uncertain. Like you could be highly paid, have a high paying job and things like that. And you are still very vulnerable. So that's, I encountered it absolutely like firsthand. I'm like, I need to take uh, sort of matters in my hand. And that's how I turned to real estate. Like back in the days, I would study for my son certification, like architect certification. And I would be up late nights uh, look, studying and things like that. And the real estate uh, start that I got was from Carlton Sheets uh, course. Uh, Carlton Sheets and Ron Legrand were the sort of the gurus in the 80s and 90s at the time. We don't uh, kind of hear them as much now. But that was the course that kind of got me started uh, realistically. Otherwise, I do have a good bit of background of lots and uh, actual apartment, new construction and things like that from back home uh, from India. Uh, But here where it comes to U.S., I said, how can someone get started in properties uh, on modest means? And cash flowing rentals was kind of the answer I came down to can have Lots of other things as far as lease options go, wholesaling goes and things like that. So where I kind of fell into the niche was that I said, cash flowing rentals seems to be something that I can do while I'm still employed at my full-time job. I can do this on the side and manage and things like that. So I started slowly but surely. And when I moved to Baltimore area uh, as my sort of next job change, I suddenly discovered that Baltimore is a great cash flowing town. So I kind of networked with brokers and some seasoned investors and things like that and kind of found what will be the good neighborhoods and things like that and then started scaling up actually. So in fact, even before we bought our first single family house or our home to live in, I already had about, I think, six or seven rentals uh, while I was still living in the apartments. So 
over time then obviously the 08 pandemic i mean 08 financial debacle that happened and you know i realized that the real estate was quite cheap at the time but the credit was a problem so after that sort of 2009 10 11 that era i kind of doubled down on my purchases and i bought uh, boy i mean quite a lot of real estate at the time and that's how we were able to kind of scale up. And we own well over 180 uh, sort of townhouses and single family right now. I have uh, passive investments. I am sort of GP into well over 900 doors at this point. And that is how it is. I mean, my wife is a full-time investor. She quit way back in 2012. I quit my uh, full-time job in 2015. So we've been at it for quite some time now as a you know, true full-time real estate investor, you can say. And I guess you can pick and choose and uh, <laughs> go whichever direction you want in this. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Sakar. So as you were building up your portfolio, you know, um, have you ever gotten... I guess, um, nervous or anything like that about scaling so quickly or building up such a large portfolio? Uh, Sure. I think through my sort of experiences and just networking with folks and things like that, a few things that really stand out, especially from a single family portfolio standpoint, Eileen, is that people fail primarily for two reasons. Uh, and they are kind of interrelated, right? And one is like low quality of work, you know, like you can have a poor quality of work. And as you try to scale up, uh, you know, you can scale too quickly. It's very easy to buy houses and things like that. Once you have your team established, uh, as far as finance goes and contractor goes and things like that, you can scale relatively quickly. But what I very uh, closely observed was that if your quality of work is bad, you can have a portfolio that can pretty much fall like a house of cards. Or in other words, your life can get so miserable that you are always having maintenance issues or, you know, folks are always unhappy and that can lead to sort of that turnover and things like that. So to answer your question, you know, yes, I was very nervous in terms of, hey, how to do the next best thing. And I was observing what was happening around. But as soon as I kind of got some of the basics right and I kind of adjusted my philosophy to, hey, buy in the correct neighborhoods and do a correct uh, job in renovations and things like that, that meant we were, uh, you know, spending a lot of money in renovations, uh, doing it correctly. And I could probably write a book on uh, renovating the houses and doing a correct job in your CapEx or value add or whatever you uh, you want to pick the project. And then the net result now is that off of this large portfolio that we have, we hardly get any maintenance calls, to be honest with you. I mean, sometimes I'll joke with my internal staff that, oh, we have appliance-related calls more than true, uh, you know, actual calls associated with, let's say, the plumbing, the drywall or electric and things of that nature. It's always something to do with appliances that goes on. And sometimes those are the factors that are going to happen regardless. Uh, But to answer your question, I think you do realize that, yes, the the ladder that you're going to climb is a difficult one. But the more knowledge and sort of uh, learnings you can apply from uh, what you have gained, I think the path can be uh, rewarding and you can certainly, uh, you know, come out ahead. 
And so from making sure that you're creating a solid foundation, you're buying the right properties in terms of single family or multifamily, whichever aspect of real estate, can you share some of the like underwriting tools or tips that you look for when looking to invest in a new deal? Sure. So one of the primary things, Eileen, uh, and that relates to single family and multifamily is that buying in the correct neighborhoods or submarkets, you know, you do not want to have a sort of a great property in a bad neighborhood or conversely, you can have a okay property in a great neighborhood and you can still do good. But sometimes, you know, if the neighborhood is not correct, you can pretty much fall flat on your face. That's kind of your face, I should say, that buying in the correct neighborhoods has to be your primary number one. So if you relate to this, people live in neighborhood first and then comes the house or the apartment. There's no such thing as, oh, I want to live on ABC Main Street. No. First, people want to say that, hey, you know what? I want to be in such and such submarket because that's has good schools or I can get to my job and things like that easily from there or my highways are like much closer. I can uh, travel quickly and shopping or schools are great and things like that. So that's your number one. And then moving forward, you can always say that, hey, I'm going to have the houses correctly and things like that. Of course, you can sort of stack up that, hey, your underwriting has to be correctly as far as whether things cash flow properly, are you being conservative and things like that. And we can, of course, go into details as far as how you underwrite correctly, what metrics are you looking and things like that. But at a high level, I would say that Yes, if the neighborhoods are great, your property is in decent shape and you have belief that, okay, I can take this to sort of that next level, whether you're doing a a sort of a high capital uh, sort of improvements or you're doing some light interior improvements and getting a little bit of upside on your rents and things like that. And we've done both of them, actually. And you can do all of that, but to get you started, if you make some sort of bad mistakes as far as, oh, you bought in a really bad neighborhood, then I think it's very difficult to come out of it. I mean, you can, you just going to have a lot of headwinds ahead of you if you do that, basically. Thank you for sharing, Sakar. Sure. And so in terms of underwriting and taking a look and doing the analysis for the different mm-hmm. deals, especially during now, during a pandemic, and when the market and the environment's a little bit unstable and uncertain, you know, sure. what are some of the things that you look for in order to be, you know, conservative in terms of like rent growth or maybe um, the capital expenditures and reserves? Sure, sure. On that front, Eileen, I think some of the things I can save some time and money for the viewers is that if you're looking at especially a C-class deal, I encourage you to perhaps maybe look at the rent rolls or the T12, like the first thing, and look at if there is like a COVID reserve line or pandemic-related concessions or just bad debt associated with evictions and things like that. And you can quickly tell that, oh, this property was doing better, like, let's say, uh, you know, we are recording this in early March right now, 
But if you look at a T12 or a rent roll from past one year, you'll start to see that, oh, the property was doing much better before the pandemic. But as things started to progress towards Q2, Q3, Q4, you're seeing all these differences as to where this property is doing. So that can give you an indication that, hey, this property perhaps may have tenants that have suffered uh, some job losses and things like that. So taking that base further, then you want to, you know, maybe perhaps temper down your uh, sort of rent premium expectations that perhaps maybe assume for first year or two, like a flat rent growth, assume maybe worst come worst, just assume like five to $10. Do not assume uh, $25 to $50 type of rent premiums. Assume that it's going to be flat. Assume that your rent, uh, sort of your expense growth is also going to be higher. Then a lot of people, when they're doing the value add, one of the things I consistently see is that to make the underwriting work, sometimes people are saying, hey, I'm going to do the value add and suddenly I'm going to achieve eight to 10 to 12 to 15 percent that's a good base to work off of then suddenly you say that yes the property is lagging off of your market rents you can see that yes we can do some improvements and take it further of course we can go on the expense side that hey are the contract services maybe higher you can look at your payroll if there is a way you can shave off maybe you know 10 15 50 dollars off of the payroll that can amount to cumulatively a very large number. So those would be sort of at a high level, those would be the things you can look at. I'm sure there are other things as far as, hey, from a rent growth perspective, are you being extremely conservative and realistic enough? That's definitely up there for sure. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. And so from like, I guess, a reserve standpoint to make sure mm-hmm. that you're covered in all in, in case of the unforeseen happening, sure. you know, mm-hmm. what's kind of like a rule of thumb that you would look for from that depends side? On, yeah, it depends on the property there, Eileen, is that if you're doing a C-class property, you know, there are two things we do is that we will keep a CapEx reserve that's over and top of the capital expenditure budget we will have. We will budget about maybe 10%, uh, you know, more than the CapEx we are spending. And also we keep a operating reserve as well. We'll, we'll keep about 8 to 10% is our magic number. Sometimes it's very difficult to pencil the properties, like if you're trying to have too many reserves, uh, you know. So we try to keep those reserves for sure. And again, sometimes to make the underwriting work, or if you're going in, like, let's say best and final, you can shave off some numbers and say that, hey, my CapEx is uh, looking pretty good. I can maybe go 5% instead of 10% and things like that. So you have to play with some of those numbers at the end. But I would say having 
capex reserves and operating reserves just in case something else comes up or you you don't get caught those would be sort of the things that we do internally i'm sure there are probably other ways as well that people are doing it but those would be the primary two things we definitely do in our deals and how do you view the market right now especially with in either both multifamily or single family especially with the pandemic that's going on and uncertainty with the eviction moratoriums and everything like that? Like, what do you kind of see from your perspective? (laughs) (laughs) We can write a book on this, I mean, for sure, Uh, because it depends on which market you're seeing, you know. But my general thesis is that when it comes to multifamily, it is extremely hot right now. Oh, my God. I mean, you are seeing properties flying off at record prices. I mean, just uh, last month, we bid on a few properties in, in the Atlanta submarket. The guidance was around 155 to 160 a door, and those properties traded for 180 a door. Mm-hmm. So it is. I, I mean, you know, if you look at sort of that 25,000 over asking price, we were absolutely floored as to what the market is doing right now. And even on the single family side, it's the same thing that. Interest rates are at record low. I mean, we are, uh, I mean, I'm personally selling some of my properties and we have no problem in doing proper renovations and then, you know, sort of putting those properties at record uh, price on the market and, you know, maybe get a two, 3% concessions at the end, but you're still selling that at the top. So on one hand, you have so much eager buyers and just because the interest rates are low, and there's so much uh, sort of down payment help and things like that on the single family side that you see like a lot of uh, inventory that's extremely shrinking. And if your property is great, you will see that a lot of properties are going under contract in a week or two weeks for that matter. Same thing on the multifamily side, you're seeing that again, the COVID reserves have gone down, for example, you know, used to be 12 months, came down to like nine months. Just last week, we got the guidance that the COVID reserves are going back uh, to like six months. So that makes underwriting much more easier as well. And now we are seeing that, yes, multifamily property is the same thing. I mean, you are seeing well over, like for some uh, properties in good submarkets, you are seeing well over 300, you know, confidentiality agreements, like well over 300 CAs getting signed and brokers are telling that they are having a hard time keeping up with the number of tours that people are doing. So the market is extremely hot and I think it will continue. It will continue. Uh, And as we all know that what has happened in the office sector, retail sector, and even on the uh, all the other sort of like hotels and things like that, all of that capital is coming into multifamily for sure. So for a foreseeable future, you will see that multifamily is the darling investment sector you're going to see. It's going to have record prices. So we have no problem getting into deals which we feel are hot enough because we just know that it's hot today. It's probably going to be hotter tomorrow within the next three months for sure. So there's no problem. If you can make the deal pencil properly, again, it doesn't have to be the probably the record numbers or the record IRR that you would like. I think you have to probably in this market, in my opinion, go hungry or go aggressive a little bit so that you can get in the deal and see where this market is going to go. So I'm extremely sort of bullish as to next two, three years, and then 
you know, sort of you have to write that. And if you get too conservative, you will find that you will probably get beat on deals and you would not even make into best and final. So I guess that's how I see it, you know? (laughs) Oh, yes. And then so what are some of the ways that you differentiate yourselves in order to stand out from the rest of the other offers? Sure. So, I mean, personally, I have, uh, I mean, I'm a KPN sponsor on a lot of deals. I have a 20-year track record as far as what I have done in the real estate space. So that itself speaks for it. And of course, I have my team members who would have done like, let's say, new construction, or I'll take support from my mentor as well, that he would be invested in, let's say, 7,000 doors and things like that. So as far as standing out from a competition, we have no problem. Like when I'm doing personally my tours myself, I'll tell them that, hey, I have done the good, the bad, the ugly. And the moment the broker sees that, okay, this guy has 20-year track record and the sort of the questions I'll ask the, when I'm touring the properties, I can look at the building from the out front and I'll ask him the question. So my mantra is that if I can see the cars and I can see the roof and the gutters, I can probably pretty intelligently tell as to what's going on on the inside or sometimes even from a building architectural standpoint, whether it has closed door entries or breezeways or just doesn't have any breezeways. It's like a direct townhouse style entry. You're going in the door. And sometimes even from the exterior, you can tell like if the roof or even the sidings are in a certain shape and things like that. You can tell from experience that, okay, what sort of problems they may be having. You look at some of the exteriors, you see the windows, they are from like 70s, 80s, and you can start to tell that, oh, the siding is flaring up or the sort of the seal on the windows is like uh, glossing over and things like that. So, and there's a chipping paint all around the thing. So you can start to tell the history of it and you can then start to say that, hey, to get these units in good shape, you're not looking at a simple capex or a light interior value add, you start to see that, okay, you will have some exterior improvements to do, which perhaps could add a couple of hundred thousand dollars over your sort of interior budgets and things like that. So that's how we kind of very much, we're very realistic about what's going to happen. But then at the same time, when you are at the best and final, you can say that, hey, instead of replacing something, can I, you know, maybe save that or do some alternate, you know, uh, value addition in this and save some money so that I can be competitive in the offer. So it's all based on deal specifics. And then when you when we are talking to brokers, they see that kind of experience and they'll say that, oh boy, I mean, we are dealing with a group that's extremely experienced and know exactly what they're doing. And that's what builds their confidence that, the track record, the team, and then once they see that confidence and the surety to close, that's what gets them that, hey, we understand what this group is trying to do. So we are confident about them. We will uh, sort of, we love to work with them because brokers love a experienced team that knows that how fast this business is and they want to be in the same fast lane. They do not want to be saying, oh, you could be right all day long, but just not win the deal. So what good is that? (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, Sakara. There's so much with your background experience. There's so much to learn from you. So we might have you come on another episode as well. I'd love to. (laughs) So Sakara, what is really next for you and what are you looking to do in in the future? Uh, Sure. So my mantra is very simple, Eileen, that 
I have a 20 year history and, you know, me and my wife, we've been full-time investors. My wife has been doing it for full-time for eight years. I've been doing like almost, uh, I guess, six going on seven years now that I've been full-time. I'm a KP on the deals and things like that. I kind of fulfilled sort of your basic needs, if you want to call it a big house, a big cars and things like that. So I've gone through that phase of mine. And I always love to work with people and sort of, you know, bring up everyone. I'm a very people-based person, to be honest with you, is that I love to, you know, sort of network and kind of show the light that since I have a 20-year history, I feel that now it's my moral obligation to work with newer syndicators and say that, hey, this is what I see. And by the way, I don't do it from a sense that, oh, I have my partnership share or anything. I mean, I'm in deals and I have signed on loans where I have not taken a single piece of money as well on those deals. I'm just doing it from a standpoint that, hey, I see somebody new who's very passionate about it and they're trying to do this thing. And I feel it because as a newer syndicator, there's just so many expenses that comes to you in front of you. And there are not that many great people to work with. And when it's the opposite that's true with me is that I like to work with, you know, honest syndicators who are trying to make it work. And I know how those first two, three years are for all the newer syndicators. So that's my passion is that work with more and more syndicators. Of course, I do my own deals as well. So that's kind of my passion is that just work with everyone. And it's a team sport, as we all know. And let's bring up everyone. That's my passion. Oh, thank you. I love that, Sakar. It's a really great uh, mindset to be in. It seems like it's a way for you to give back as well. Sure. So it's really great. Absolutely. And so Sakar, how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? Oh boy. I mean, I think real estate has given me everything. I mean, if you imagine, Eileen, for someone who's come to this country, let's say in the last 20, 23 years, and to be at this stage that you're financially free, you're time free, you can go wherever you want, do whatever you want. I mean, not to get into financial matters, but we just bought 150K Mercedes like uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we didn't even think about one bit in this. But it's not about the money. It's more about, hey, what can you do more? My passion is always about what's the next thing. When I had two or three houses, my next thing was to get on to like, you know, 10, 15 houses. When that was there, I could see the passion that, hey, you know what? I could really do more and I can scale up to maybe 50, 60 houses. That was my goal. But I achieved that very quickly. And there came a time when I was buying 12 to 15 houses a month. And that's no mistake. I was buying 12 to 15 houses a month. All I needed was which address it is, what price it is, and that's how it was. But now I'm at a point where I have done so much of property management and value adds and things like that. If you tell me a submarket, the price, and I can see some pictures, I can assuredly tell you that whether that's a deal or not, and whether I have a confidence in that some market, and I can guarantee you that I can take down some of those deals sight unseen because I would have probably toured that market, seen some of those deals and things like that, and I would have conviction. So that's my passion now is to get on to more deals and do much more bigger in multifamily. That's my passion. But at the same time, as I kind of shared earlier, is that 
I'm extremely passionate about working with other people and doing more on a team sport basis that, you know, the more we do it together, it's a lot more fun. It's never about the money. It's more about, hey, how you can do as a team. And it's a pleasurable light that everybody's happy and everybody is excited to do bigger and better. Oh, that's so great. So anybody who gets you as a team member on their team is going to be so lucky with the experience and the knowledge that you bring and just the value that you're creating. Um, sure. And absolutely, Eileen. I say it all the time. Like, It's not about money. It's more about what sort of value, what sort of creativity you're bringing to the table. And ultimately, let's say if you're talking multifamily, if you do your project plan right, not a lot of investors are going to be unhappy that, oh, you didn't achieve the 10% cash on cash or whatever you have imagined. As long as you're transparent, nobody's going to be like extremely unhappy that, oh, you didn't achieve a performa, but you were extremely transparent. Instead of giving 10%, maybe you gave 8%. But the idea is that you were transparent, you were extremely communicative, and people would love to do that. There's no such thing as you promise something great and you vanish and then boy, that's a problem. But if you are a team sport, if you're uh, like honest and uh, communicative investors, everybody would be happy at this stage. I think multifamily comes in is that we all love to share and go to the next stage. And everybody understand that not every deal goes the way you had planned because there's just so many things that come up that you don't envision. But as long as you are extremely communicative about everything, people love to partner and go to the next level. That's what I would say. It's just not about the money. Yes, money is a factor, but at the same time, how good you are as a person? Are you sort of willing to help each other? Are you a good team player? All these things definitely come into it. I mean, money to me, I think definitely is a factor, but that's a remote second at some point. No, that's so great, Sakar. And thank you so much for sharing all of that. Sure. And so, Sakar, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and what you do, where can they go? Sure. People can log on to premiumcashflow.com or send me an email at info at premiumcashflow.com. That's I-N-F-O at premiumcashflow.com. On our website, you will find my podcast, uh, Premium Cashflow Podcast as well, where a lot of guests and expert advice is there. I bring in my 20 plus year experience into my interviews. There are no ads, there's no sort of agenda in it other than sharing good content with folks and bringing out the best from my guests as well. And then I am, of course, on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. I'm all over the place. Just look me up, Sakar Kavle. I guess I'm the only one, Sakar Kavle, with a unique name. It's easy to find. And uh, I'd love to network. Just shoot me and uh, we will get on a short call if there's anything as far as underwriting or capital raising or submarket questions uh, anybody has. I'd love to get on the phone and just offer my advice for free as well. That's no worries at all. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Sakar. I really appreciate and I'm so grateful to have met you today. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me. It's a pleasure. And I love to come on, come back on, on any podcast you wish. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. 
Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifacecapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.